Welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine Podcast. I'm Jamie Smart, and today's podcast has a much broader scope than usual. We're looking beyond perioperative care to an issue that affects all of us working in healthcare and impacts on the patients we look after, and that's the issue of environmental sustainability in healthcare. It's my pleasure to be joined today by a longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Eugenie Kayak. Eugenie is an anaesthetist working around Melbourne, including here at the Alfred, and is the national convener of Doctors for the Environment Australia's Sustainable Healthcare Special Interest Group. Welcome, Eugenie. Great to catch up with you again, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Eugenie, for as long as I've known you, which is probably nearly 20 years now, um, environmental environmental sustainability has been an interest, maybe even a passion of yours. Can you remember what first made you interested in trying to bring about change in this area? Um, Yes, look, I don't think there was a particular event or um, any particular action that um, led me to sort of become very involved in this area. I think I've always had an appreciation that we only have one earth, one biosphere, and we completely rely on it to provide all our resources and also to deal with our waste streams. You know, there is actually no planet B, though, you know, as we're all too well aware we're not really reliving as a human race within our ecological means. So there's a real issue here. There's an issue that, and we can't continue to um, practice and live as we are as a human race. And whilst there are many things that we're doing to um, cause environmental degradation and destruction that impacts on health, Climate change is probably the overarching issue. It's an existential threat to our health and the planet, and we've known that for well over a decade um, in the medical um, community and also um, globally. And I think once you appreciate that, um, you really can't not act, can you? You can't sit back and not do something. So for me, um, over a decade ago, the best thing for me to do was join Doctors for the Environment Australia because I thought that was the most effective way of trying to create change. So, look, I think in many ways you've you've been ahead of the game. I think environmental sustainability has gone over that period of more than a decade from being, I guess, somewhat of a fringe issue to something much, much more mainstream. Uh, Are you encouraged by this increased interest that you're starting to see in in this issue? Um, Absolutely. It's um, long overdue, but there's definitely been a massive increase in interest and concern really over the last year or two. And I guess that um, almost peaked with the recent IPCC report and even COP26 that we've just had. So with the global community and also the medical profession as a whole, yes, there is far more interest and concern and wanting, people wanting to act and wanting to know what to do. Okay, so I guess there are two real issues I want to discuss today. You've already mentioned one is climate change. And the second one is hospital waste. And, you know, I realise you can't really separate particularly the second one from the first one. But um, let's, let's just talk about climate change. I was reading one of your articles recently in uh, um, Insight MJA, Um, And I found a quote that I found really staggering. Basically, it said that if the global healthcare sector were a nation, it would be the fifth largest emitter in the world, contributing about four to six percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. The Australian healthcare sector makes up approximately seven percent of Australia's national carbon footprint. Now, that's just staggering to me. Uh, That that seems like amazing numbers. In, In what ways 
do healthcare pollute the environment? Um, yes, look, it's not an insignificant contributor, is it, the healthcare sector? And um, obviously there's the healthcare sector's carbon footprint and then it's it's massive amounts of waste as well. Um, when we look at the carbon footprint, um, I mean, it's a big organisation. It's carbon intensive and this is a whole sector. In Australia, um, hospitals, public and private hospitals together are thought to make up 44% of Australia's healthcare carbon emissions. Um, pharmaceuticals make up almost 20%, um, whereas primary and preventative care, community health is far less than that. So there's a carbon footprint and then there's also the waste amounts and um, the consumption of other resources as well, which um, we use to care and um, care for patients, care for the population, improve their health, but at the same time healthcare is um, part of the problem. It's not part of the solution. And at the same time, you know, we know that climate change drives poorer health outcomes. And at the, uh, the COP26 recently in their, in their health program stated that climate change is driving poorer health outcomes, increasing death and uh, increasing health inequities. Uh, it's just a double, double-edged sword, really, isn't it? It is a double-edged sword, um, but really the healthcare sector, just by what it is and how large it is, could actually be leading in creating change. And it was... Um, very disappointing at the COP26 um, part of the health program. Australia didn't participate in that and it also didn't participate um, in the commitments that came out of COP26 um, health program, which were not insignificant. Yeah, so I think there were like 50 countries that, that uh, committed to creating a climate resilient, low carbon, sustainable health system. And yet we weren't on that list. No, we weren't on that list. So, um, yes, actually, I think there were 53 countries, um, some of those countries comparable to Australia, like the United Kingdom, America, Canada, they were on that list. They committed to um, making um, working towards climate resilient healthcare systems as well as improving the sustainability of their healthcare um, sector. And both are really important because the healthcare sector itself is at risk from climate change. Climate change is a health threat, but it also threatens the way we can um, provide healthcare. And Australia should be really aware of that and be participating that in nationally and also on the global, um, global scale. If you look at, just remember back to um, our black summer mm -hmm. from 2019, um, 2020, the amount of stress that put on the healthcare system was quite extraordinary with those fires. I mean, it's been studies have been published in the MJA. Just over the few months of that summer, there were over 400 deaths that were related to smoke from the fires. Mm -hmm. But not only that, there were over 3,000 extra admissions from cardiovascular and respiratory um, causes that was attributable to the fires. And on top of that, there was another over a thousand admissions to A&E from asthma. So the events that climate change is, um, well, precipitating or exacerbating are actually then also putting stress on our healthcare system. So we really do need to work out, one, how we can assist in mitigating climate change, but also working out how we're going to adapt to those things that are going to happen um, already and are happening already. Okay, so you're talking about the, the healthcare system being sort of well-placed to be a, a part of the solution, not just a part of the problem. In what ways can you see the health system fulfilling that role? Well, I think particularly, dare I say, in Australia, where there might be a slight lack of um, political leadership in um, policies to address 
climate change mitigation and also environmental um, degradation. The health sector is a large sector. It's about 10% of our GDP. So it has a lot of power in its purchasing power. It also employs over a million people and is also a big construction, um, contributes to construction. So just by the very nature of how our health sector um, purchases um, products, goods and services, how it acts, how it does things, could actually um, lead the way. So you're talking about more than just, you know, how we fuel hospitals and how we provide healthcare, but you're talking about the actual supply chain and the inf economic influence that a big network or a big system like our healthcare system could have. Absolutely. So um, how we fuel our hospitals is important and hospitals are going towards um, looking at how they can be um, purely electric and run on 100% renewable energy. Um, but also how we actually um, procure our goods and services, you know, how we affect our supply chains could actually lead to change across other sectors. The NHS is a great example of this. Um, so they've got a net zero carbon emission target by 2040 with an 80% reduction by approximately 2030. And they've said to all their supply chains, um, you need to meet or beat our um, emission reduction targets by the end of this decade or we're not going to supply from you anymore. And they're coming on board. Um, it's not all um, sort of too difficult, I don't think. I mean, AstraZeneca, even in the middle of um, COVID, has said that they will be net zero with their value-added chains by 2030, and they're still planning to do that. Yeah. Okay. So, look, with all of that, and and I guess going back to COP26 um, as well, how frustrated how frustrated are you by inaction at the federal level here in Australia? Oh, exceptionally frustrated. I think. Um, we're missing such an opportunity. Um, and look, if we talk about COP26 to begin with, there was a real opportunity there to elevate um, the importance of climate change and action on climate change and the intersection with health, how climate change is a threat to our health, but also how action on climate change, moving towards low carbon um, societies can actually have great health benefits, um, co-benefits, like if we stopped... Um, combusting um, fossil fuels, for instance, the health benefits from decreased air pollution would be significant. Um, so I think COP26 was a real missed opportunity to elevate um, the connection between health and climate change, and particularly the health program, well, from our perspective as doctors. Hmm. Um, okay, look, let's move on to, to talking about hospital waste. Um, I was looking through the ANSCA statement on environmental sustainability and anaesthesia, um, and it basically says that operating rooms generate 20 to 30% of total hospital waste, and uh, 20 to 25% of total operating room waste comes from anaesthesia services specifically. Um, again, these are worrying figures, and I want to sort of look at this, I guess, on a, both a, a micro and a macro level. So let's just start with the micro level. We're both anaesthetists, both work in this system. On a day-to-day -day basis, what simple things can we bring into our perioperative practice that can increase sustainability of that practice? Um, yeah, well, for anaesthetists, for anaesthetists, I think it's really important. For us particularly, work probably matters far more than anything else we do in our private lives if we're looking at our carbon footprint. And I say that because um, our anaesthetic gases are um, potent greenhouse gases. If we decide to use desflurane or nitrous oxide, even for half a day, um, as far as our carbon footprint's concerned, we may as well have flown from Melbourne to Sydney and back for lunch. 
So we can make those decisions and we know how to make those decisions. Mm. We can do that clinically without impacting um, patient um, safety or well-being. So that's, that's a start. And um, when we do use anaesthetic gases to make sure they're low flow, so minimise what we're doing. And that also at a micro level, the, the four R's always come up, don't they? Then that is actually reduce what you use, um, reuse if you can, repurpose, not that we actually do that particularly in Australia, equipment and um, recycle. So just thinking about that all the time and particularly the first thing, and that is to actually reduce what we're doing and what we're using if it's not necessary. Obviously, um, clinical safety comes first, mm, uh, but course. sometimes I think we automatically use a whole lot more products than we need to. Mm. Also, I would say about waste, um, one thing that's really simple and everyone in hospitals could do far better is waste segregation. We don't need any new infrastructure or protocols, but at the moment, waste segregation is done very badly. And by that, I mean, we're not putting the right things into general waste versus clinical waste. Clinical waste costs usually 10 times the amount to um, dispose of, and it's also very carbon intensive in how it gets treated and disposed of. So if we just actually took a step back and actually put the right things into the right waste receptacles would be a great start. So a lot of this to me would come down to education, not just educating people in theatre, but educating management to have a system that's that's um, easy to use and that's, you know, supported right down through hospital management. Um, you know, it, it, are, you start, are we starting to see some systems like that being put in place? I think we are, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think most of it is education, and I think really it's up to the hospitals and those of us working in hospitals to actually support those who are doing the education, to prioritise it, to have the executive support to spend time doing it. Because the education is not just a one-off thing, is it? It has to be continual. It's when um, staff are in into the hospital when they go through their orientation process. So a lot of it, I think, really is those micro things are about education and having green champions to keep pushing it. Okay, because, you know, as you said, there's, waste is, is obvious when you look around sort of an operating suite. Um, the shift to disposable gowns, drapes and equipments has inevitably increased operating room waste. Now, my understanding that apart from infection, the other big drive for that shift from reusable to single use was the idea that using disposable was was more environmentally sustainable than re-sterilising. Is that still the case or are we going to see a shift back? Well, it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, it's not um, as complicated depending where you are, um, what state you might be in, what country um, and what hospital. The first thing I would say is that, you know, that shift to disposable or single use we probably need to take a step back and ask, you know, why, why did we actually do it to start with? Was it actually to improve infection control or clinical safety? And I think sometimes it probably wasn't. Um, often the argument given was that it was cheaper to potentially use single-use items than um, to pay for the staff and processes to um, process our reusable items. But studies have consistently shown, peer-reviewed um, um, life cycle assessment studies have shown that consistently reusable equipment is actually cheaper 
than single use. And some of those studies have been done in Melbourne. In Footscray Hospital, um, they have um, found that for each operating theatre, they save about $6,000 per year on using predominantly reusable anaesthetic equipment compared to single use. Mm. So that's, you know, from a cost perspective, it's probably better to yep. use um, reusable. And um, you asked about sort of the environmental impact. And you're quite right. Um, if you were living in or working in Tasmania or New Zealand who have predominantly a high um, mix of renewable energy in their energy mix, then it's probably a no-brainer. Reusable um, equipment would have a low lower carbon footprint at this point in time um, because you've got re, um, renewable energy powering the um, washers and the sterilisers. Mm. In Victoria, we still have predominantly brown coal powering our washers and sterilisers. So the most recent life cycle assessments in Victoria, the carbon footprint of reusable is actually um, higher than single-use equipment. But that's all going to change in 2025. I mean, really pleasingly, the Victorian government has stated and undertaken that all its public organisations will be um, supplied by 100% renewable electricity by 2025, and that includes public hospitals. So that's something that's coming and that's yeah. really exciting. And um, what worries me about that only is that we have sometimes in our systems, we've actually got rid of our um, capacity to mm. um, reuse and process um, a lot of equipment in a lot of hospitals, and it would be good to start planning for that. It would. It, it, um, I've, you know, looking at the way that... Uh, investment could be put back into that system by taking this environmental sustainability seriously seems like a very positive move forward. Are you seeing um, any other changes within the health system that that um, will develop that are leading to development of a more sustainable healthcare system? Um, I think there are changes across the board. It's mm. a matter of whether they're enough or not, but there's a real appetite for change within healthcare. Um, the UK, no doubt, has led it with the NHS and what they are doing and their commitment to be net zero by um, 2040 and their greening um, program. But in Australia, um, a lot of the colleges are stepping up. A lot of our professional bodies um, are sort of suggesting that we need um, emission reduction targets for the healthcare, including DA and the AMA. Um, Hospitals are being planned right now to be actually 100% electricity, so not have any gas installation and to be run on renewable energy. The new Canberra Hospital Extension in Canberra is one of those. Mm -hmm. And in Adelaide, they um, are planning for the new Children's and Women's Hospital to be 100% electric. So um, they are great progresses. Um, also, different health organisations, so no federal or state um, government has yet got emission reduction targets that are specific for the healthcare sector that are not sort of fitting with their overall targets. But the Hunter New England Local Health District came out just probably about a year ago now and said that they were aiming to be net zero emissions by 2030 for their operations and more also net zero waste. And so now they're working towards getting to those targets. Mercy Health in um, Melbourne and elsewhere have come out and said that they are going to try as hard as they possibly can to be net zero by 2030, like that is their aim. So there is movement mm -hmm. and that's um, really encouraging. So there's a silver lining in that cloud of carbon emission there hanging is. over us basically. Yes. Now, 
With your role for Doctors for the Environment, um, you've been involved in calling for a national sustainable healthcare unit. Can you just tell us what, what that would involve? What does that look like? Um, yes, we have. Um, and DA um, has recently um, released an updated proposal for a national sustainable health care unit. Um, in Australia, there are, as I've said, there are lots of organisations and different groups moving towards how they can address their carbon footprint and environmental um, impact. But we don't have any coordination across jurisdictions, whether that be states, public, private, um, primary health care, preventative health care um, industry. So there's no overall coordination. The NHS had a sustainable development unit, um, which was really quite sparse for about 15 years that had great outcomes. It was um, run by about five to 10 people um, based just out of Cambridge University. And I would envisage that, you know, for Australia, we could actually start with something like that. Mm. It doesn't have to be big, um, but if we have the right people and the right support to actually help develop roadmaps and um, coordination um, for change. For instance, at the moment, there's no sort of consistency of measurement of carbon emissions across our states or health entities. So if we had consistent um, standardised measurement of carbon emissions, that would be a great start. We also had um, the guidance to um, assist in the best practice, evidence-based best practice, um, sustainable protocols or sustainable um, models of care for our health systems and also guidance on procurement and um, how best to go about working towards um, sustainable procurement, um, uh, I guess, guidelines, protocols. Um, I think the appetite there now is for change. Organisations want to change. We don't necessarily need massive regulation for that. Um, hospitals in both the public, private, not-for-profit system, they know that this is what's going to be expected. Boards are beginning to talk about it, say, right, what's our next um, um, environmental um, sustainable governance strategy? What's it actually going to show in this area? But a few have actually come to me and said, but we feel like we're all having to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, so um, as you said... They need a roadmap, I guess, yes. a sort of well-funded, well-researched, well-thought-out um, roadmap developed to help guide Absolutely. hospital executives. Um, okay, so if anyone else, if anyone listening to this podcast is, is interested in doing more, finding out more, what resources would you recommend to them? Well, obviously, DEA has um, a sustainable healthcare um, section on our website, but probably... Um, more useful even is to look at the NHS's website, their Greening um, Healthcare website. They have a delivering um, net zero healthcare report, which was um, released about a year ago. It's a 50-page report that goes into quite a bit of detail and it's probably got all the information there that you could need to start thinking about this. Um, in Australia, there's also a new, well, not a newish group, that there's a collaboration called Wiser Healthcare, which is based out of Sydney University, but also incorporates Monash um, and Bond University. And they've now set up a Wiser Carbon Healthcare um, page and resources, which has got a lot of um, good evidence-based publications on it. Um, and then there are colleges. A lot of our colleges are, are moving in this space. Um, the College of Anethodists, for instance, has a statement on um, 
climate change and sustainability and also an audit tool to help um, anaesthetists and anaesthetic departments um, move in this area. Again, with the anaesthetics, we've got a, a great um, group called TRASH, which is a training, le trainee-led research and audit for anaesthesia for sustainable healthcare. And that's got a website which has got lots of great information. But moving away from anaesthetics, the College of um, Emergency Medicine have a position statement. The AMA, um, the College of Physicians also have um, documents and the GP colleges do as well on this area. So the information's there. It's really just up for us to educate ourselves and I guess to raise the awareness of those around us. Absolutely. Um, and I think it is actually really up to every doctor to to take this on um, to varying degrees, but um, we all have to do what we can. Um, business as usual is just not an option. As the um, Lancet Countdown pointed out in 2019, business as usual, if we go on with business as usual, really means that a child born today, by the time they reach old age, will be experiencing a world that's four degrees warmer. So in my mind, business as usual is not an option. Yeah. So it really is up to everyone, but particularly the healthcare profession, because this is a health issue. It's thought to be potentially the biggest health threat of this century, and that is still in the middle of COVID, which we're dealing with. So if we're not going to speak up, then I don't know who we can expect to speak up. Besides, the medical profession have a great history of um, influencing public policy to protect health. We did it with tobacco and we've done it with other um, public health um, issues and we're well placed to do it with this um, as well. Eugenie, I think that's a really strong, positive message to finish up with. So again, I want to thank you for your time today and I really want to thank you for your sustained efforts in these areas for raising, for raising awareness, speaking at various conferences, the articles you've written um, in, in various journals. Thank you for all the time you've put in. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.